0: Welcome to Stonebridge. Uh, it's great to have you here. Those of you joining us live stream, we're thrilled you are doing that. And if you could do us a favor and share the live stream with a friend, it would be wonderful. Uh, a lot of you are new or newer to Stonebridge. Uh, Wayne mentioned earlier, if you were here at the first start of the service, we'd love to meet you. Um, he'll be at the back. I'll be at the back. And we also have a table over here to your right where some folks are volunteers be happy to answer any questions you might have about Stonebridge. Any way we can serve you and come alongside, we would love to do that. We are in the book of Proverbs, and I have not talked through the book as we're doing in this series. I don't know how long it'll go, I just I have, just being honest, uh, I haven't done this before. I've taught Proverbs, I've taught sections, but never tried to teach the book in its entirety over a, a period of time. So yeah, 15 or 20 years, we should get through it without any problem. But um, no, we'll, we'll take this a little differently, and um, uh, let, let me pray briefly, and then we'll, I'll tell you my hopeful plan this morning as we spend some time in the Word. Father, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you that it is true, that it is reliable, that it is without error in a culture that is wrought with uh, error and uh, hypocrisy and confusion and hurt. Um, Help us to be the kind of men and women you want us to be, no matter our circumstance. We thank you for your word, for your spirit, and for your people, your church, that you died for. And help us to focus for a few moments on the living and active sharper than a two-edged sword text that you gave us all to read in Christ's name. Amen. As we begin the study of Proverbs, it's a little different. We talk about Bible study methodology. If you're in BSF or Precept or Community Bible Study or you've done your own, you know, fill in the blank program, there are typical sort of hooks observation, interpretation, application. Sometimes there's correlation there are observation, correlation, interpretation, application. You're observing the text, you're observing the Bible, you're looking at what the author wrote. Uh, when they wrote it, what was the story, what was the context? And you do a whole lot of observing before you ever go to what does it mean, the interpretation stage. Uh, part of that might be the cross-referencing, correlation, looking what others, so if it's Paul, what else did Paul write about this? If it's the Gospels, what else did the Gospels teach us about this? So there's a methodology uh, to studying the Bible. When you come to wisdom literature, it's very different. Those principles still apply, but we're looking for different kinds of structure. And one of the tasks of teaching this is I simply can't go chapter to chapter or paragraph by paragraph like I would like to do or prefer to do, because you've got to understand some of the structure before we can look at these things. And my job is to help you, uh, not to try to make you a seminary student or a Bible nerd, although that wouldn't be bad, uh, but to encourage you that this book is accessible. And um, because wisdom literature is multifaceted, it takes learning to look at things a little differently than you might normally read something in your Bible. Job 28.28, by the way, Job is wisdom literature. Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs are called the corpus, the body of wisdom literature in your Bible. So Job 28.28, by the way, you may not know, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It's the longest, oldest book in the Bible, if you look at it that way. And it also deals with one of the thorniest topics. Why does suffering happen to innocent people? Where is vindication when the unrighteous win and the righteous are hurt? And it's a marvelous text, which I think is illustrative. When, When God gave us this text, the oldest, hardest, most difficult, longest book is about pain. It's about the difficulty of making sense of a broken world, broken creatures in a broken context. So it makes remarkable sense. 2828 is a scintilla of what the book teaches. And the man and to the man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord is that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord that is wisdom and to depart from evil is understanding. So we're getting these themes early on in antiquity, if you will, uh, as part and parcel from the whole body of the text. So what I want to do today is I want to think a little bit about the fear of the Lord. I want to revisit a little bit more about what wisdom is and isn't and how we acquire it. And finally, we're going to look at what I'm going to call the cast of characters, uh, primarily who are the fool, the, the, the scoundrel, uh, the, the problem makers, if you will. So let's just jump right into this. Chapter 1, verse 7, uh, Bruce Walke calls the foundation of the book. Last week I mentioned uh, uh, Derek Kidner called it the motto of the book, and it's uh, helpful to take a quick look at that. Again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we have this collection of information. Again, Walkie says, It stands in front of the rest of the collection like the quintessential expression of the basic spiritual grammar for understanding the book. Now that sounds really cumbersome and really academic, and hold on. I'm doing this. I'm not trying to confuse you. I want want you to think a little bit more than just reading a proverb in four or five minutes. My, My... My uh, worry, my objective, my fear, my prayer for you is that you get your nose in the book all your life. That every morning, every day, and I'll say seven days a week, it's not magic or religious, or you have to. Not because you have to, but you get to. It's not because you should, it's because you can. And the Word of God is available to all of us. Uh, It's us that is the problem And my hope is to provoke you to think, to think, to think, to think biblically, to read. Don't let the world teach you theology. And that's part of, so my will back up on how to encourage you with Proverbs. I don't want to take it out of your hands, but I want to equip you in ways you can easily grasp. It takes some thinking, but you'll start to see things that uh, you may not have seen before. Uh, So look at this quote again from Waltke, the quintessential expression of the basic spiritual grammar for understanding the book. I love the language. This is sort of the this is the nomenclature you gotta understand before the book's gonna make sense. Solomon didn't drop his dissertation on the way to the bindery. It's it's collections that are very brilliantly organized, which would follow, if it's the most wise man on the planet at the time, that it would be organized in a brilliant fashion, and this is what our scholars and commentators have helped me with, and I hope others. And as you dig a little deeper, I think you'll, you'll begin to see these things. Um, if we, we think about Bible study methodology, we look at words, we look at repetition, we look at terms. We have to think about phrases. We have to think about idioms, expressions. We have to think about themes. And that's one of the different ways we approach the book of Proverbs, to think about this a little differently. Um, now, to relate it perhaps, uh, if you're in the market for a car and you've done your homework and research and said, okay, this is the car we want to buy, and you start looking for can you ever get the car, and then you start looking at you know, color and whatnot, what, one of the first things that happens you settle in on maybe two or three uh, models is what? You start seeing them on the road. Uh, when and if you ever get delivery of said vehicle and you drive said vehicle, it's amazing how many of those cars are on the road, is it not? And you see them everywhere. So much so that after a point of five, six months of having your new car, there's a really discouraging thing happens. A new model comes out. (laughs) Just a little different from yours. You convince yourself it's not better, but you know it is. And you know you want it. You have seen that car, and you know that car that quickly. If you understand these structures we're going to talk about, idioms, parallelisms, structures, repetitions. We'll talk more about couplets and so forth and chiasms as we go through the book. You'll see them everywhere. But you've got to go shopping for the car. <clears throat> you've got to pick the model or you're never going to see them. And that's where this is a little different than narrative or didactic or even reading the Psalms and that's what I'm hoping to equip you with a little bit on the front end. The fear of the Lord occurs 22 times in your Old Testament mostly in the wisdom literature 14 times in Proverbs the first one was Job 28:28. and when we when we start thinking about this fear of the Lord it's a compound topic so what we would normally do is we'd study the word fear and we study the word Lord and we do Bible studies on those words, and we would come up with, so what? The fear of Lord is a phrase, and Bruce Waltke lovely illustrates it with the word butterfly. You can look up the word butter and the word fly, and you're never going to know what a butterfly is. Because these words are conjoined, and they become, in, in their own right, a term or a compound And so, again, just illustratively, we have to look for these idioms, and the fear of the Lord is one that takes a little time to figure out what it means. And again, you will see it all through Scripture. The fear of the Lord refers to the Lord's special revelation, first to Moses, and then, of course, we're going to have it explained to Solomon, and then it's going to be completely fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What I mean by this is Moses was the one who got the law from God. And that's why the Jew always revered him. Still does. He was a special person, a special relationship. That Moses talked to God like a man talks to a man. No one like him. The prophets don't come close. Solomon comes along. He's wise beyond any measure. And he understands things. So God inspired him. And we'll see that in a moment how he got the information. And then, of course, Jesus Christ is the living, eternal embodiment, the God-man who is wisdom in and of himself. Um, Now, let me read part of what Walkie writes here. I disagreed a little bit with him, and I'll inject why. But it it helps us understand, what's this wisdom we're after? What does it mean? He says, um, people in general are motivated to obey their consciences out of fear fear of God. So saints respond with a moral imperative of Scripture, apart from legal or ecclesiastical sanctions. He's saying, um, we want to obey God. And if it's moral or ecclesiastical or religious, we really want to obey those. I disagree. One, at one time that was true. I don't think it's true anymore. I think we've changed so much we don't even care about this anymore. He continues, for, uh, for them, fear of the Lord is just as real as their love for him. Both psyches are rooted in their faith. They believe his promises and they love him. They believe his threats and fear him. They believe his promises and love him. They believe his threats and fear him. Oh, that that was true. When I sin, when Michael chooses to sin, it's down to do I love God or do I love sin more? And the same is true for every one of you. We're making a choice do I love God? Or do I love myself and my sin more? And that's the battle. So I think we've become a little more cavalier. I don't think he's wrong. I just think the culture's changed even since he's written this book. C. Bridges sums it up this way, which I love. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. An affectionate reverence. I call it holy fear. You've told me to talk about that before. I like this affectionate reverence. I, I want to do this. Now, at the risk of being impaled and burned on a stake, I'm going to say a few things. You may not agree Stay with me. Uh, I think there is a place where it's okay to want your parents' approval. All the psychologists and people that are, you know, your, your hair on the back of your neck is now standing up. Stay with me for just a moment. If you have a good parent, good father, good mother, and you're that firstborn child, you're hardwired to please your parents like it or not. A friend of mine who's a physician, uh, his parents both died in, in recent years. We were talking on the phone the other day, and I said, you're a pleaser. And he laughed. His parents were good people, and he wanted to please them. Now, don't go too far with this. Do you love God? enough to want to obey him. That's what Bridges is getting at. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father. I want to obey my father. We have to be careful how the world skews these things, and we have to be careful how we can muck them up. But My point, I hope you understand. Proverbs 8.22, the Lord possessed me, and he's talking about wisdom at the beginning of his way, before his works of old, from everlasting, I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. We often speak of, the, of eternity in chunks, eternity past, present, and eternity future. We can't measure eternity past or eternity future. We're just in the present. And I think it's a fair assessment from Proverbs 8.22. Wisdom's always been around from eternity past. Wisdom is fully embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, I think, is completely clear that Jesus Christ created the universe and all that we see. The fully God, fully man was the agent that God the Father empowered, if you will, enabled, if you will, unleashed, if you will, to create out of nothing. The Lord possessed me, possessed wisdom from the beginning. Well, let's think about this wisdom for just a moment. And note, it is multifaceted. It is manifold. There's not a simple Webster's Dictionary. We talked about some of this last week, but I want to expand just a bit. First of all, the Proverbs talk about instruction or training. Chapter 1, verse 2, it's right there. This is hard one. You don't get this automatically. Uh, years ago, uh, five, six years ago. This is Music City. This is the music industry. Some people that have helped me with podcasts and whatnot. And I was talking to one of them and said, okay, at this chapter of my life, I'm not going to pick up the piano, but what instrument could a person play at this chapter of my life? That was a fascinating waste of time discussion. (laughs) To which he kindly said, you're too old. And he told me about a strum stick. And if you don't know what a strumstick is, look it up when you get home. And it's like giving somebody, uh, well, anyway, it's like a dummy's instrument. But now, uh, maybe you're a great strumstick person. Don't, don't let me get in trouble here. The point was Michael, you're too old. You've got to start this earlier in life, and you've got to spend a lot of time when Jason gets behind those keys or Shaley plays. They're autopilot, baby. I don't know if you've ever watched a accompanist, pianist. I marvel at men and women who can play every hymn in the hymn book without looking at the hymn book. Or play Mozart or Bach or whatever they can play without ever looking at a sheet of music. Because they did it. Why? They trained for a long time. It was hard won. Secondly, understanding. Also, verse 2 of chapter 1. It's insight. It discerns between relationships. And this goes back to a story in 1 Kings chapter 3. Now we talked about Solomon uh, about to divide the child, but let's go before that. 1 Kings chapter 3 verse Uh, 9. God asks him what he wants. And the king replies, so give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people. Notice your servant To understand, to judge your people, to discern, there's the word, between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Remarkable request on the part of Solomon. He learned a lot from his father at this level. He asked the right thing. And because he asked the right thing, God blessed him well beyond making him the wisest person on the planet at the time. But what's fascinating about this passage is he understands this is a job no human can do. I need your wisdom. They're your people. I have this little, you know, I'm not a critical person at all in nature. I'm very genteel and kind toward everyone and all things. And everyone, you know, I'm the most tolerant person you'll never meet. Um, but I have pastor friends that talk about my church. And because they're my friends, I get in their face and go, it ain't your church. Now, I think I know what you mean when you say that, but as a pastor, you can't say my church. You can say the church where I serve. But don't, now, if you go to a church, XYZ, Methobacterian, you can say that's my church. You can say Stonebridge is my church if it is. That's fine. But as a pastor, I think it's incumbent to not say this. And it's verses like this to get under my skin. These are your people. Um, you may or may not believe me I can't prove it to you but I I stay awake worrying about you and those kids in the back and what they're getting at this church and these people are watching right now because James 3 verse 1 haunts me the older I get not many of you become teachers knowing that you will incur a stricter judgment and when you tile in here on a Sunday which makes my heart smile and when your kids go back there when Christy commandeers this the best part of the, the service to me is watching her corral those kiddos uh, and teach them and what they retain goodness gracious and they go back there and how the men and women right now are helping your children uh, I, I go home and go Lord I've, I'm responsible in large measure for what those people believe I don't want to mess this up not for your sake I'm sorry it's not just you it I'm going to incur stricter judgment if I get it wrong. So you need to pray for every church that opens the Bible and teaches it. Solomon understood this. Wisdom is manifold. It's multifaceted. We can get it through instruction or training. We can get it through understanding. Thirdly, we can get it through wise behavior. Also chapter 1, verse 3. It's a practical application. It's the idea that now I can do something with it. Um... Abigail and Nabal is a great story in, um, in uh, 1 Samuel 25. It's a great story. Some of you know it. Uh, David's men are on the run. They need provisions, and Nabal is, uh, to put it mildly, a jerk, and he won't help them. And uh, Abigail comes along. Christy had asked me this a couple of weeks ago. She said, is there anybody else in the Bible that the words intelligent and beautiful are used to describe I didn't know the answer, and that became a rabbit hole this week. Thank you very much. Um, But it's the same word. That's what caught her attention and then mine later. It's the same word when we talk about this wise behavior. She's called intelligent and beautiful. And so what happens in the storyline, which you may know, is that the husband's a jerk, and uh, Abigail basically supplies David and his men with provisions, And he says, God's going to honor you. And that's a love story that is kind of weird and twisted at the end of the day. But Nabal is the wordplay people miss. Nabal is one little tiny, let's just call it vowel off from the word Nabal, which means fool. Now, I don't know if God meant this to be funny. I don't know if Nabal's parents said when that boy was born, that's a fool. (laughs) I don't know what's going on, but he's named fool. And his wife is intelligent and beautiful in her dealings. Fourth, prudence, chapter 1, verse 4. Also the word shrewd, Genesis 3, chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, Christy talked about the serpent and the, the, the temptation. And don't eat of the, one, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat, you will surely die. Well, the serpent was more crafty. That's the same word. So what this tells us as we look at how the word is used is a person who's prudent has the power of forming a plan of power of forming a plan, but the plan can be good or ill, and that's why it's shrewd. So you think of a movie that you like, I don't like to mention movies because somebody always gets upset, but one comes to mind was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which most of you, or if you're under 60, don't even know the movie, but um, you root for the bad guys. You want them to get away. Uh, they had a plan, sort of a half-baked plan, but they had a plan. But the storytellers endear you to the criminal. And you want the criminal to win. And that storyline is played over in many films and books. We want the bad person to win. This is prudence. This is one who can form a plan and who's shrewd. And we admire the implementation of an evil person when they can pull something off. Fifth is knowledge and learning. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It's best perhaps to think of this as comprehending and learning put together. It has also to do with something that was given to you and received and then processed. We've talked about the military watch one, do one, teach one. Watch, watch how it's done, do it, and then teach somebody else. And someone's shepherding that process and that would be in line with that. The wonderful part of wisdom is that anyone who wants it can attain it. The operative word is do you want wisdom it only comes from the lord but you have to want it proverbs 2 verse 6 the lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding cindy and i uh married 40 will it be two years this year i always have to ask 43 this year i knew that i 43 years this year we'll be married and um so uh People come to us, and they say, we want a marriage like yours. We taught marriage and family stuff for many, many, many years. And um, we, I tell the story, we taught parenting for about six years, and I've repented ever since. Uh, <laughs> but we did talk about marriage and family. And uh, there was a couple in this church uh, m- months ago, and we were out to dinner with some other couples. And they had sort of ID'd, they were a younger couple, they had ID'd the couples at the table. And they said, uh, this couple, they're the lovebirds. And Michael and Cindy, if I remember correctly, you're the partners. And I went, yeah, that's right. And they had, they had an observation for each of the couples at this table. And it was delightful. And I thought, you know, not one couple will give you everything you need in life, but you can learn from other couples. And Cindy and I chased all kinds of couples when we were young in our married years. And we learned a lot. It was hard won. You go through difficult you go through infertility. You go through probably innumerable miscarriages. You go through adoptions, failed adoptions. You go through heartache with children with problems. You go through five back surgeries and a husband that lives with chronic pain. I'll play the, let me play the violin for myself. No, it's hard. I don't, I've said it many times. I don't know who said it first. Marriage is a long journey. Most people stop before they get to the first vista. It takes a lot of years. And then you look back and go, Oh, my lands, how he carried. We talk all the time because in ministry, you're around a lot of death. Uh, and not to be cheery, Michael Easley, a morbid person, but you're around a lot of death. It's inevitable one of us is going to die. And whenever it, it comes close, or I'm involved with someone who's lost someone, we talk about it and, and say, You know, and we're both like, I'm never getting married again. This has been too stinking hard. But boy, was it worth it to get where we are? Do we wish things were different here, there, and yonder? The yeah, but you know, if you swap that, you would have a whole other set of horrible things to go through. The old axiom about marriages like flies on a window—those on the outside went in, those in went out—you know, it's just silly <laughs> stuff like that. Um, I would not be the man that I am without Cindy. Period. And I think she would say the same things. I wouldn't be the man without her. <laughs> um, what do you want? It's not too late to start. Unlike piano at 65. Don't do that. Don't waste your time. We'll see in our study that these paths are going to come back and forth. The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked, the way of the wise woman the way of the adulteress we're going to see this all through the structure of the book but even though wisdom's available to all not everybody wants it and that's where we want to go next let's look at the cast of characters who don't want it now when I first started going through these I felt somewhat disingenuous sharing this with you because I go you remember the illustration about if you want to know counterfeits money you don't study counterfeit you study real currency Because if you can pick out real currency, then you can spot the counterfeit, right? That's an old apologetic line. Um, So I felt like I was studying the counterfeit. But then I went, no, this is what the text is telling us. And what I found, and maybe you will as well, I see a lot of myself in some of these characters, and I don't like it. And so maybe that's the provocation of wisdom is to say, am I really lined up like I think I am? Or am I deceiving myself? First of all, the wicked. It's a term used for a criminal, the one who's guilty, who behaves wickedly. They're cruel, they're greedy, they're violent, they threaten other people, they practice deceit, they speak perverse things, they are treacherous. In Proverbs, they rarely act alone. This is why we talk about peer pressure, so, you know, cavalier in our culture, you know, we want our kids to avoid peer pressure. When I see teens in this room, my heart is happy and terrified. I cannot imagine being a teenager in this culture. I cannot imagine how difficult the temptations, the accessibility to everything from pornography to drugs to, you know, permission, everything's fine, there's no consequences for anything anymore. I can I mean, God knew I could not have been a teen at this time. I am certain of this. The wicked hates God, the wicked, and this is a very uncomfortable teaching and we'll look at it in the future. God hates the abomination of the wicked and there's even clear text that he hates evildoers. Now we know God is loving and he died for the world and I'm a big proponent of that. But there are there, there are lines drawn. And when it's pure wicked it's not redeemable we might say. We'll get to that later. Wisdom literature can't be as precise as Pauline theology. That's something about structure we'll have to talk about. Uh, the 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 naive or the gullible. Um, the word naive, most of your Bibles sometimes simple is in your Bible. Uh, Waltke coined the word gullible, and he talks quite a bit in his commentaries and lectures about why he chose this word. Because naive is kind of fallen flat. We said, "You're naive." What does that mean in the way we would use nomenclature? Nomenclature is so changed. I mean, we. Can't, I mean, Christie asked our kids about what's a person. I thought, well, that's debatable. <laughs> I don't know where you are, but probably outside this room, not a lot of people are really clear on that today. So language changes, meaning changes, usage changes. So naive falls flat. So he's just gullible. Uh, Think of them as raw youth, that they are able to be taught. They are able to be shaped. Chapter 1, verse 4, again, give prudence to the naive, give prudence to the gullible. Um. To the youth give them knowledge and discretion. You can't make them learn. And, and youth or the naive or the gullible are in this tug of war with the world and wisdom. That's what it means to be even middle school, not even teenager anymore. Probably even earlier than middle school. Unfortunately, they're not characterized in a positive light. They're considered weak-willed. They're easily seduced. They're at great peril of apostasy. All these terms I'm giving you come out of the Proverbs. I'm not looking them up in a dictionary. This is how the Proverbs use the word. That's why I've given you a few verses. To, if you want to get started, you can do it on your own. Um, they are savable in the sense that they're not without hope, but they still have to be the one that wants. Third, third the fool. The fool is convinced of his own ways. He is the antithesis of wisdom of the wise. The terms used for the fool are derogatory. He's deficient. He's deaf to truth. He's deaf to wisdom. He can't hear it. He's morally corrupt. He's certain of his own ways. Um, 1 7. A fool despises wisdom and instruction. Chapter 12, verse 15. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. Proverbs is unvarnished when it describes the fool. Nothing is positive when Proverbs talks about the person who is a fool. It's often paired with folly in the wisdom literature. He rejects his father's discipline. He despises his mother. He's poor at his own speech. Chapter 10, verse 8, he's a babbling fool, Solomon says. Um, And of course, the famous one, chapter 17, 10 a rebuke goes deeper into uh, a wise, a person who's understanding than a hundred blows into the back of a fool. When we were younger and all these books about strong-willed children and about corporal punishment, and there were books on how you even spank your child, right or wrong, uh, you wood spoon, nylon spoon, whatever you do, never use your hand, all sorts of things, and how you do it. And I remember one uh, person I won't name but talked at great length about how many times they spanked this child until left welts and I thought a hundred blows aren't gonna fix this child fix this child the child's a fool it's more of a parent's exasperation uh, by the way fathers don't exasperate your children that's a clear command don't raise your hand how many fathers have exasperated their children Um, I certainly had, have. The fool is incapable of managing his home or his finances. Interesting. His judgments are prepared for scoffers, blows for the back of the fool. In fact, Waltke goes on to say the word idiot would be appropriate to use when you're talking about a fool. Michael Fox has written a commentary on it. He writes um, that the word dolt or oaf would be fitting for a fool again Waltke cocksure of his own point of view he has no heart for education or disregards moral truth and recklessly vents his own folly as he airs his own opinions he gets others and himself into trouble he is hot headed and reckless and he takes delight in evil conduct Money in his hands is wasted. He's inclined to mindless amusements. His ways are apparent to everyone. It is better to meet an angry she-bear robbed of her cubs than a fool in his folly. Whoever is self-confident is a fool. Instead of perceiving knowledge as desirable and so consciously cherished and sought after, fools are repulsed by it and try to rid themselves of it that is why a fool returns to his folly like a dog returns to his vomit, Proverbs 26, 11. Not a pretty picture. Um, some of us have had children that are fools. Maybe you were a fool when you were young. It's sobering. And we know people like this. But I hold up the mirror and go, when am I like this? A lot of these things I've been like. I've been a hothead at times. I can have a short fuse at times. Um, my wife corrects me when we are driving the car all the time. I say things and she gets on me. I go, they can't hear me. She just gives me a look. She's right. I'm wrong. Next point. I'm a fool. Well, the cast of characters continues. The mocker is the most hardened of these people. Fourteen times in Proverbs, he again is the antithesis of the wise, whom, interestingly, he hates. He's kind of thrown in this catch-all of fools and gullible and proud and haughty. He's depicted as a big mouth who can set a city aflame. No man earns more universal detestation or deserves it more than he who wears a perpetual sneer, writes Walkie. The mocker must be driven out to restore order, chapter 22, 10. Drive out the scoffer, and contention will go out. Even strife and disorder will cease, and finally God himself will scoff at him. Sometimes you've got to get the cow out of the barn. I remember a, a farmer, pastor friend of mine, a church, in this, and we were in Nacogdoches, Texas at the time. I was in college, and there was a big you know, kerfuffle, and this person left. And it was, it was a trauma to the church. People's feelings were hurt, and everybody was upset about it. And, you know, everybody looks for the pastor to either ask for wisdom or blame him. That's what we are given. And uh, he said to me, he goes, Michael, I grew up on a farm, and there were certain cows and cattle and animals that just kept knocking things over and knocking them down. And they were to the point where my dad would just say, let it go, knowing that animal's going to be dead in days or weeks out of the protection of the barn. But the disruption it caused in the barn was worse than losing that animal. It's a good picture of the mocker. The sluggard is found 13 times in the Old Testament. All are in Proverbs. It's a horrible depiction of a lazy, slothful person. Chapter 6, verse 6, go down, O ant. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. You lazy bum, go lean your elbows on an ant bed for a while. And what a, what a terrible picture. This is how dumb you are. This is How lazy you are. Go look at an ant bed for a while. And maybe you'll learn something. Chapter 6, verse 9. How long will you lie down, oh sluggard? Uh, one of my, the one I enjoy more, 1924. The sluggard buries his hands in the dish, but he won't even bring it back to his mouth. Uh, all, all, any of us who had children in high chairs remember those days when your little boy or girl is so exhausted and they're eating away, and next thing you know, their head's in the plate, right? They're so tired, they can't even put the food in. They're hungry, but the tired wins out. That's a picture of a sluggard. They're so exhausted and so dumb, they're going to fall asleep in their porridge. Um, Interestingly, the Proverbs go on to speak of this sluggard can destroy a family's inheritance. When... um, I uh, probably many of you know, and we know, and some of you are, a wel- very wealthy people. We uh, had friends that were um, incredibly wealthy, and of course their children were uh, sometimes called estate babies. And um, this one who built this incredible business in, in the middle of the country... And his uh, one son lived on a yacht off Naples, with, along with a multi-millionaire home in Naples. And they had servants and food brought in and chefs brought in. And they, they and did whatever they wanted. They just lived the life of Riley. Never worked for the dad of the company. They just lived on the dole, as it were. And I thought, well, that sounds kind of attractive to me. I'd like to try that yacht living for a while. Uh, they destroyed all the money it was given to them. Just burned through it. I had a friend in college. When he finished college, he got a nice big check from his, uh, his grandparents who'd put money away when he was born. And in a matter of weeks, he blew it all. He blew it all. didn't save any of it. It's cliche. This is the sluggard. This is the person that doesn't know what to do. One scholar observes, Proverb has no term for a workaholic, but that the opposites are sluggard and diligent, vice and virtue. Not saying we should be alcoholics. There's just no term for alcoholic, uh, workaholic. Think about that in wisdom. That's kind of similar. Uh, think about that in wisdom literature. There's no angst against a workaholic. It's the diligent who gets up early and late, works hard and you know, saves money and doesn't go into excess and avoids the foolish ways over against, as Walke says, the sluggard and the diligent, the vice and the virtue. The lazy person has to look on hard workers as fools. Otherwise, he stands self-condemned and self-imaged in his own wisdom. Walkie says, it could be equivalent in English, I can't go to work today, I might get run over by a truck. That's how this person, a sluggard, looks at life. He's not worthy to be called poor. Interesting, ripping irony in chapter twelve, verse 19. He who tills the land will have plenty of food. But he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty and plenty. It's a wonderful war play. You work hard, you're going to have a whole bunch of stuff. You don't do anything, you're going to have a whole bunch of nothing. It's a beautiful illustration. Finally, the senseless or the mindless. This is 13 times in Proverbs as well. And uh, it's like the root of this is an Egyptian term. And this is a salacious term because it's most often used of a person who commits adultery is lacking sense. That's the terminology. Chapter 12, verse 11, he who tills his hand will have plenty of bread, but the one who per, per, pursues worthless things will lack, lack sense. 17, 18, a man lacking sense pledges and becomes a guarantor of his neighbor. By the way, don't ever lend money to a person. Give it to them, don't lend it to them. If they need help, give, choose to give it to them or not. Don't lend it to them. That's the point. Because it creates all kinds of problems. And frankly, the senseless and the mindless are going to waste it anyway. Some of you may come to a juncture where you have children that are completely um, a mess. And you're going to have to make a decision. Are you going to enable their lifestyle? Hard, hard stuff. If you're married, married do it together. Do it with counsel. Uh, you can enable sin. You can underwrite sinful lifestyles. Or you can choose to say, "Sorry, I'll help you. Do anything I can to help you. It will not enable your lifestyle. I think this is what the senseless and the mindless are about. Well, another cheery Michael Easley sermon. Let me turn the corner and give you a little look up. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 and 23, ends with a little different approach. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings uh, Look what's going on there. It's a loud, bustling city, and she's got to yell above it. Is this culture loud and bustling and crazy? Wisdom's got to yell above it. You teenage men and women, even middle school kids, um, I, I don't, I'm not a fear mongerer, I don't you know, traffic in that type of thing. I am afraid for you. Because the noise of the social media culture is part and parcel, at best, deceptive. At worst, a flat-out evil lie. And all the seduction of this technology, which I love. I, I use it. I, my, Cindy, I use it all the time. I love it. But boy, it can be used for evil. And you can get sucked into a portal. I think I mentioned last... Week I was somewhere, and I was waiting to check out, and there were two teenage girls, and they had their phones out, and they were TikTok. They, this is all they—they they never made eye contact with me the entire time I stood at the cash register. They were looking at TikTok and laughing and talking to each other. Something's wrong. I'm not completely against all this stuff, as I said a couple weeks ago. Get off TikTok if you're on it. Just stop. I don't care what your rationale. Pull the plug. But my lands, wisdom is trying to shout over the noise. The question is, will you hear? That's the question. Verse 22. How long, O naive or walkies, were gullible ones? Will you love being simple-minded? What a nice way of saying, how long are you going to be an idiot? How long will you be stupid? That's really stupid. Are you going to keep this up? Scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Fascinating. And now you have the person to work as Jesus Christ, who not only shouts, but is wisdom. He offers wisdom. You, you, if, if you will get your nose in the book if you will spend time looking for some of these things we've talked about, if you'll learn to draw in your Bible and not depend on your electronics, if you'll spend time every day, you'll be a different person. And you will love God more than we love sin. It's not that hard. That's why wisdom is available to any who want it. But you have to want it. Father, we thank you for this word. Sober, fun, intriguing, complicated, sad, tragic. It's what we would call real. You're the God of all creation. You know our hearts and minds completely. You know the sin that we toy with and then we give into again and again. You know our struggles. You know our hurts. You love us. I don't understand why. I know why, but I don't understand why. Thank you that you hear a sinful man's prayers. Thank you that you care about us more than we care about ourselves. And I pray that men and women who call Stonebridge home, who watch on live stream, who, however you access, you'll use this information far beyond what this vessel can deliver in ways that your word stands eternal. Mine can be forgotten, but the wisdom of your counsel is indeed from eternity past and continues to eternity future. In Christ's name, Amen. Well. At-